0: Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode 64. Today's guest writes about the evolution of media and the social web and is the senior writer at Fortune.com, Matthew Ingram. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session.
0: Reached out to you a while back. Um, I guess in the discussion was things like is, is, is Facebook uh, a media organization? Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, we can talk about whatever you want.
0: But so much has freaking happened.
2: Yeah. A lot.
0: Okay. So Seems it's
2: like every every day there's <laughs> yeah, yeah like a week's worth of news.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
2: I mean Trump is ob- is an obvious you know topic. How do you cover? Yeah. Trump and how how does the media respond when? the president lies all the time
0: well <laughs> um, i wanted to ask you cuz so so I, so I know that you cover you know media and the social web yeah um so let's w- I'll, I'll try to sort of Whoop. stay there and if these mics drop <laughs> we'll we'll just pick them up again okay um but really i'm really really curious about you know with everything that is that is going on you know, media is, is playing now a more integral role than ever, I think, in terms of how we consume information and how we consume news. And tied into that is the social web. It's sort of it's sort of all one thing, isn't it? Um, you know, people will find headlines on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, and then they'll click through and go to the articles. And, and now I'm like, there's, you know places like Vox and, and Mother Jones and I'm looking at you know all these things and I go w- isn't there just the Globe and Mail and the Star and there's like s- the proliferation of media properties yeah. is just huge yeah um and, and so to try to navigate that for people is is, is very I, I don't know if it's challenging
2: for people it's definitely challenging I think a lot of people have a hard time you know just finding the places that will tell them what's going on like yeah. people that places that will that they can trust and one of the, you know, one of the good and bad things about the internet and about social media is that you you have a, a universe of choices that mm-hmm. you never used to have, right? Yeah. You used to maybe have a couple of newspapers. Maybe one was good. Maybe one was not so good. Yeah. You had maybe a couple TV stations. You know, one your mom liked to watch. One sure. somebody else liked to watch. Maybe you had a radio station. But now you've got m- literally hundreds of thousands of different sources of information including Facebook yeah. and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and and so it's even harder to kind of navigate all of that and mm-hmm. i think a lot of people's default is just whatever their friends share on Facebook yeah and the problem there is that people sharing things on Facebook don't apply the same kind of intellectual rigor mm. and and sort of editorial judgment <laughs> As the stuff you find in the papers, theoretically. Yeah. Uh, so what you get is a sort of undifferentiated stream of stuff. And in many cases, that stuff is wrong. Or it's a hoax, or it's a rumor, or it's conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And so Facebook, unfortunately, they just encourage you to share, right? They want you to stay on the site. They want you to click on things. They want you to like it or not like it or be angry about it or whatever. hmm But they don't particularly care, I don't think, whether something is, quote, unquote, true. Yeah. What they care about is that it sparks some kind of strong feeling in you. Mm -hmm. So Jonah Peretti of BuzzFeed talks about how people share things because they feel an emotion, a strong emotion. Sure. Hate, love, fear, Mm -hmm. joy, whatever. So they don't share things because they're factually true. Yeah. In fact, that's almost irrelevant. It's about how you feel. Yeah. So if you already don't like Hillary Clinton, and you see an article from a kind of quasi-reputable-looking website mm-hmm. that's shared, and it says Hillary Clinton was involved in a child pornography scandal, invo- mm-hmm. you know, in the basement of a pizza parlor, part of you is probably going to think, well, I bet that's true. Yeah. I, you're not going to do a lot of research into it because you don't have time. People probably not
0: even thinking whether it's true or not. No right? They're, they're just saying, see, I told you so. Exactly.
2: And so Facebook has become a kind of machine for confirmation bias, what psychologists call confirmation bias, which mm-hmm. is you tend to see and interact with things that you already agree with or believe. Mm-hmm. And so it perpetuates those things that you see or believe or feel or believe. And it's very difficult. That's what causes the filter bu- bubble problem is you get subjected only to things that you already kind of agree with. Yeah. Because Facebook's algorithm wants to show you things that you like. It wants to show you, it wants you to be happy and to spend lots of time on Facebook. So yeah. the algorithm then filters things in order to show you things that it thinks you will like. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to show you things that are going to challenge your viewpoint. It's not going to show you things that will make you think about your assumptions about society or whatever, it's going to show you things that it knows you're going to click on and share. Mm-hmm.
0: And so is there a, I, I saw something, I don't know if it was the IAB, recently said something about the, the sort of need to do something. I don't know what it was. And I know that Google and Facebook have put out, um, you know, press releases saying yeah. that they're going to try to do something about this whole fake issue of fake problem. news.
2: Yeah. Um, and they're both taking a different tack. So Google and to some extent Facebook has attacked the advertising. So a lot <laughs> of these websites uh-huh, that create okay. fake news, yeah. the reason they do it is is to make money from the ads. Yeah. So if they get taken off of Google's ad platform or taken off of Facebook's ad platform, it's harder for them to make money. Yeah. And so that's the way they're trying to sort of Cut off the blood flow mm. to these fake sites. Yeah, Facebook is also trying to do things with the algorithm that can determine when something is fake and when it's not. Uh, the problem is that fake news is is a spectrum of things. Right there's there's fake news stories that are just completely made made up out of nothing. Yeah, like the PizzaGate scandal. Mm-hmm. There are stories that are have a grain of truth, but they've been sort of amped up and turned into clickbait and so Hmm. the sort of thrust of the story might not be true but there is a grain of truth in it. There's something there. So is that fake news? Hmm. I mean now you have people every time they see something they don't like or something they disagree with they'll say fake news fake news. Donald Trump has started doing it um, so anything that doesn't fit with your sort of preconceptions instantly becomes fake news. And I think one of the risks is, I've been thinking a lot about this, one of the risks is that this kind of democratization of media that, w- that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years sure, sure. with social media and so on. Every, the every web everyone's a media now, right? Right, That's everyone's a publisher, everyone can distribute, everyone has access to theoretically this massive audience. Mm-hmm. What we've seen is a decline in trust. So because there are so yeah, many different yeah. sources the the kind of differentiation among those sources is very small so mm-hmm. on facebook an article from the wall street journal and the new york times looks fundamentally the same as an article from a website that a bunch of teens in macedonia put together like a week and a half ago yeah so you there's no differentiation between them then it's just who you believe or who you trust yeah and so if you already believe that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all these other papers are part of some liberal conspiracy, Yeah, you're not inclined to believe anything in those places. Uh You're much more inclined to believe something that gets shared from a website you've never heard of. Uh The problem is that might not be accurate, but if it fits your preconceptions, you're probably going to go with it. Is there a... Do you believe
0: that there's a solution to this? Like do p- are, are people asking for a solution? It, it seems to me that probably these large media organizations that um, you know sort of follow these journalistic guidelines and best practices, I'm sure
2: that they would love there for there to be a solution. Um, what are your thoughts? I think, I mean, this the problem is the solution is complicated. Hmm. So if you're the Globe and Mail, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal, you can do your best to make everything as factually accurate as possible to not sort of hyperventilate about, (laughs) about Trump or about false statements or whatever, to just point them out. This is not true. This is not true. This is inaccurate. And so on that can still have zero effect because the people you're talking to don't believe you. So, There's also an interesting psychological phenomenon Mm -hmm. where Hmm. if you're a person who believes something very strongly, Hillary Clinton is evil. Yeah. Liberals are bad, whatever. Sure. The more someone tries to convince you that something you believe is wrong, you actually come to believe it even more. Yeah. You defend that belief instead of challenging it because you want to believe it because it it fits whatever model of the world you have. So ironically, all of the sort of fact-checking of Donald Trump and so on that occurred leading up to the election might actually have made things worse because the more the sort of liberal mainstream media pointed out his flaws, the more devoted his base got to him. Hmm. And so they, as soon as someone said, well, Donald Trump lied about this, the instinctive reaction from his base was well you're lying
0: that's not true what to defend yeah
2: right so uh. i think the hard part is to to try and understand why large groups of people have lost trust in the traditional media and when i think there's a lot of there's a lot of soul-searching that media organizations need to do. I mean, when things were good before the Internet came along, yeah, <laughs> you had a whole bunch of power if you were a media organization. Right.
0: Absolutely, yeah. You
2: told people what to believe. Yeah. They believed you. You had ad revenue rolling in. Mm-hmm. Things were great. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of media organizations got into a real uh, a bad place where they were... Extremely kind of self-satisfied, arrogant, even about mm-hmm. their position, about their ability to to kind of dictate to people what they should believe about the world around them.
0: But they were still, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here. Were they not still fact-checking, you know, two sources, all sure, these sort of things now? Sure,
2: but the thing that made people lose trust, I think, or part of it, yeah was that newspapers inherently, and TV stations, inherently uh, filter what they cover and what they don't cover. Mm. What they write about and what they don't write about. Fair enough. Who they shoot and who they don't. What stories they think are important and what they don't. And so every time you make that choice, you are saying to your audience, to your readers or whatever, these are things that I think are important, Mm -hmm. and you should think they're important too. And you should kind of fall in step with the way that I see those things. Well, if you have unlimited choice of media outlets, that becomes that kind of gatekeeper who says, Mm. mm, you can see this but not that, or you can read about this but not that, and I'm going to tell you what to think. That kind of approach falls apart Hmm. because you don't have a leg to stand on anymore. You're not the only media outlet. You're not the only one who can go and find facts out and report them. Literally anyone can do that now. So where does your authority stem from if you're one of those uh, media companies? What it doesn't, you don't have the same geographical monopoly you used to have. You don't have the same monopoly over people's attention you used to have. So now you have to convince them to believe you. They're not going to believe you by default anymore just because you're the main newspaper in that city they'll go find information somewhere else so your job is a lot harder now you have to convince people that you are right you can't just take it for granted that they will believe you when you say that you're right
0: so the type of work that daniel dale has been doing since um you know during the election um I've heard I've heard two things. I've I've heard you know people say this is good. You're you're holding, um, you know you're, you're 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 showing truth to power. Uh, but on the other side, it's like you're getting stuck in the minutiae uh, of, of pointing out these untruths. Or you know you, you, now you've got to focus on every single right. thing that he says, whether it's a big lie or small lie. Right. What are your thoughts on, on, on? I think
2: that's a good point. I mean, we do. I wrote something recently about how I think, that lots of the media is sort of falling into the trap that Donald Trump and his advisor Steve Bannon, the mm-hmm. chairman of Breitbart News, have sort of laid for them, yeah. which is to basically bombard you at almost every minute, every hour of the day, yeah. with some new statement or new tweet or new viewpoint on something. Yeah. Something that might completely contradict something you said ten minutes ago or an hour ago or yesterday or the week before. Yeah. And so each one of those things distracts a certain portion of the media because they get outraged. Well Donald Trump said this, but that's clearly not true. Yeah. Well he's moved on, right, to some other topic or mm-hmm. he's now <coughs> doing something even worse. But you're stuck kind of arguing about whether this tiny factual inaccuracy is relevant or not. There is, I think, a a problem of getting caught up (coughs) in the minutiae Mm -hmm. and then losing sight of the bigger picture. I think you have to pick your spots. You know, you have to pick the things that about what Trump is doing or about whatever the broader story is. Yeah. Not just, hey, he said something wrong about x yeah if if x is not really that important yeah. why does it matter yeah he's gonna lie 15 more times before the day is over yeah so you kind of have to pick what are the important ones versus what are the ones where he just lies because that's what he does
0: mm-hmm. that's really interesting um w- i was speaking <coughs> with um brian jackson who works with it business and I I asked him this question about, uh, and it it baffles me, why the media um, is so hesitant to call something a lie, but (laughs) they call it like an untruth. Yeah. What's...
2: I I actually just wrote about that recently. (laughs) And uh, it caused a little bit of tension at uh, Fortune and Time Inc. because uh, my editor believes that you should not use that word, lie, okay. unless it's so egregious and so obvious yeah. that that person deliberately lied. The editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal believes the same thing. He just finished saying again today at a Harvard uh, event that he believes the bar to, to using the word lie yeah. should be so high that you maybe use it once in, in a sort of news cycle. Whereas I think a lot of people are looking for much more frequent calling out of actual lies. My, my belief is that... So Ger- Gerard Baker and, and my boss believe that in order for it to be a lie, mm-hmm. the person has to intentionally know that it's untrue mm-hmm. and say it anyway to mm-hmm. try and deceive or mislead somebody. Mm-hmm. So in order to fit that definition... You have to know what that person's intentions were, Mm -hmm. right? So just the simple fact that they said something wrong, and maybe they've said it multiple times, Mm -hmm. and there's obvious evidence that that's not true. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. You have to know that they deliberately said it to try and mislead people. Well, I happen to believe, A, that that happens all the time. Sure, Donald Trump does that deliberately. It's been shown thousands of times even before he ran for president yeah. he just lies constantly uh-huh. small things big things it doesn't matter um, my belief is that you need to apply a test similar to uh, the legal test in the US for making a false statement mm-hmm. so there's an actual crime on the books making a false statement and in order That's to right, yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to be found guilty of that uh-huh. court has to find that you were guilty of willful disregard of the truth. That means you knew the truth yeah. and you deliberately disregarded it and said the lie. Huh. So you could argue lots of things Trump has said fall into that category. Yeah. There's been abundant evidence from multiple scientists mm-hmm. that there was almost zero voter fraud in the election. Mm-hmm. And yet he continues to repeat this claim mm-hmm. that there were 3 million illegal votes. Mm-hmm. There is not a spark of evidence that that's true, and there have been multiple credible news reports from academics who have said that this is not true. Didn't so his lawyers? Yeah, his even lawyers, put in fact, rep- yeah, argued in court, yeah, that this was not true. So let's say you, all of those facts are readily available. Yeah. this information is not hidden. No, if you continue to repeat that claim, mm-hmm. to me that shows a willful disregard for the truth. Yeah. That's a lie, and we should call it a lie. It's crazy.
0: I, I want to get to um, some questions from Facebook before
2: I forget. Sure. Um, so. From people on Facebook or the company? From people on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> Zuckerberg is asking
0: no. Um, so Connie Crosby, I feel that you probably know her. I do, yeah. Yeah, so Connie Crosby. Uh, so I'll, I'll just ask the way she's, sure. she's typed it out. Um She wants to know um, your suggestion on what the average Canadian can do in light of what the Trump administration is doing, um, you know, in regards to things like, uh, you know, whether it is alternative facts with air quotes, these lies, uh, you know, whether it is um, executive orders that literally ground people from, I don't know, is it seven, eight?
2: Seven countries. Seven
0: countries, um, you know, outside of protests. She's curious. What are your thoughts on on what should people be doing next, if you have any ideas?
2: That's a really tough one. I mean, protesting, I think, is great. Uh, It shows that there are large groups of people that disagree with these executive orders and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that that's actually going to have much impact. I think it will make... The protesters feel good, and I think it will make people who agree with them feel good. But I'm not convinced that that's actually going to have that much impact. I think there are ways uh, there are ways to act through your representative mm-hmm. to to get them to sort of go on the record about their constituents' beliefs or their disagreement with certain ways that the government is acting. Justin Trudeau has the ability to. You know, register his disapproval.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Is Donald Trump going to care that much about what the Canadian Prime Minister thinks? Yeah, unlikely. Uh, he's going to have way bigger problems than that. He's going to have the UN. He's going to have you know any number of countries breathing yeah. down his his neck. So I think, I think what individuals can do is just continue to resist. You mm-hmm. know, to use the hashtag yeah, to yeah, yeah. to resist. The, the sort of pressure to give in to shut up yeah. to go along with the flow to not be difficult you know Canadians typically don't like to make a lot of noise or rock the boat uh, sure I think if you have someone like Trump the only ammunition you have is just to continually hit people over the head with the fact that his decisions are bad mm-hmm. that his process is bad mm-hmm. that he lies routinely yeah and just not give up i mean the hard part is this is a marathon you know it's not it's a four year a sprint <laughs> right right
0: have you s- i haven't seen anything like this i I've, I've i've read and heard people saying the last time they can remember this sort of and again it's only been less than 2 weeks <laughs> it seems like yeah. forever that the last time they remember these types of protests that are ongoing uh, was during the Vietnam War. Um, Have you sort of seen any sort of this pent-up anger across the masses before?
2: I mean, the Vietnam War was obviously one of the biggest. Uh, The Korean War stirred up a certain amount of protests Hmm. as well. Occupy Wall Street went on for a considerable amount of time. Um, I think there's been pockets of sort of resistance about topics like that, uh-huh. um, it's hard to come up with one that's as big though. Because if you look at the amount of, look at the numbers of people that marched in the women's march, that's just a mind-boggling all over the world. All over the world, it wasn't just and in the states people, or North yeah. America. And I think actually, you know, we we said a bunch of critical things about social media and the internet and so on, mm-hmm. and its ability to to kind of make it easier for people like Trump to get their their bad messages out. But it also provides a lot of tools for people to connect sure. around issues that matter to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, You can build a movement around something so quickly yeah. with Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. You can find other people who think the same. You can The Women's March is a perfect example. I mean, mm-hmm. that thing came together. You know, a woman in... I'm trying to remember where she was. It was like Holland or something. Just comes up with this idea, and within a week or so, there's hundreds of thousands of people prepared to march. That's pretty phenomenal. And millions of people show up. Yeah, it's crazy. Um,
0: I remember, uh, what was it? The a few years ago. Oh my goodness, why am I forgetting? Out in the Middle East, there there was you know people were getting together. The Arab Spring. Yeah, you know, and that was sort of you know mobilization via by a social media. And that
2: was one of the first sort of concrete examples of something like that yeah. being helped by social media. I mean, yeah. the ability for people to, even people with very little internet access, people with, mm-hmm. you know, old stupid phones, not smartphones, <laughs> uh, to be able to do that in such a such a short period of time yeah. to reach out to others, to organize, to resist, to create movement effectively is pretty incredible when you think about it. So we do have those tools—the same tools that Trump can use and the White House can use—to do an end run around the traditional media yeah. to get their messages out to whoever they want, to build support, you know, among hate groups and so on. Mm-hmm. We all have the same tools, and we ha- we can use those tools to resist.
0: You've written um, a while back about. Facebook being a media company. And they've always insisted that they are not. W- so, give me the argument from both sides. Why why do you feel they are and and why are they saying they're not? Or why do you think they're saying they're not?
2: I think I mean it depends on how you define a media company. Okay, sure. So, they like to say, "Well, we don't create content. So, therefore, we're not a media company." Okay. But if you think about it, there are some large media organizations that don't create content. Mm-hmm. You know, they license it or they they wow. have freelancers or they, so they are technically creating content. Mm-hmm. The key for Facebook is it is the most powerful distribution platform that has ever existed. Mm. So if you, media companies used to be about creating content, selling ads around that content, Mm-hmm. And then distributing it mm-hmm. through print or TV or radio or whatever. Monetizing those audiences. Facebook does all of that <laughs> except do. for the creating the content. They sell ads around it, yeah. which they share revenue with you. Yeah. They control the distribution. Mm-hmm. They control the sort of all the monetization aspects around that content. Mm-hmm. And they've also been paying media companies to create Facebook Live video. Yeah. They've Instant been articles. Yeah. yeah. They've been... So I think th- to argue that they're not a media company yeah. is sort of facile. Facebook, the reason Facebook doesn't want to admit it's a media company is because I think that opens up a sort of Pandora's box of problems. So if you once you admit you're a media company, especially in certain countries in Europe, that makes you liable for the things that occur okay, on your platform. Okay, okay, okay. So Germany effectively wants to fine Facebook hundreds of thousands of euros for every time a racist comment is made or an offensive comment or some Mm -hmm. kind of content appears. That could quite quickly add up to some significant amounts of money. So I think, and Facebook wants, relies on media companies to put their content on its platform. So it doesn't want to admit that it's a competitor because then lots of companies are going to think, well, why am I giving you my content? Um. You're a competitor. I wish more companies thought that way. But now, they think, well, it's just a great distribution platform and so I can monetize my content and Facebook shares the revenue with me and it's all good. Yes, But really, they're giving away the store to this massive, massive entity. Mm -hmm. And what do they get back? They get crumbs, you know, uh, worth of ad revenue.
0: Yeah. It brings up two things. uh, I remember Mitch Joel talking about You know, sort of owning your own property. You know, Facebook's not yours. You know, they can change the game whenever they want to. Uh, And then I remember having a conversation with you years ago when you were with the Globe and Mail. And I think we were talking about the comment section. And was it that the Globe and Mail was shutting down their comment section? Or you guys were like really closely monitoring it because, like you just said about Facebook, are those comments on the Globe and Mail website? You know, is the Globe and Mail now technically responsible? Right these sorts of things.
2: And that was a huge issue and still is a huge issue. It there is no kind of settled Canadian law huh. about what responsibility a newspaper or any other outlet has for the comments that appear on their platform. Mm-hmm. In the US, there's a clause in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I think it's Clause 903 or something like okay. that. And it specifically protects uh, companies like Facebook. From, and even blogs for that matter, huh. from liability for things that other people post on those sites. Okay. In Canada, we don't have that. So oh. th- it's just a really big question mark whether yeah. entities like the Globe are responsible if someone says something offensive on their website. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why comments are so controversial. They also take a lot of work. So. One of the things that I was trying to do when I was at the Globe was to convince the paper that it was worth it to engage with people in that forum and to do it on our own site instead of sending everybody away to Facebook. Um, how many times have you been on Fox News? I go there a bunch. Sorry? You mean on the No, like how many TV? times have you
0: been a guest?
2: Uh, twice, I think. Twice. Yeah, so Tucker Carlson was the most recent one.
0: Was that the one about um, that the, was Buzzf- the, bu- the Buzzfeed? Yeah. Buzzfeed Russian. That, dossier, was, a, that yeah. was that was such a fun, <laughs> <laughs> that was such a fun piece to watch. So the story was right that Buzzfeed had, no Buzzfeed didn't have the information. I guess they like did. Yeah,
2: they they had the information. Yeah. So CNN reported that CNN there was this dossier. Yes. And then Buzzfeed published it. They pu- actually the published thing. it, yeah. and
0: you actually agreed with. I did. Yeah. Buzzfeed. And Fox News brought you on, and you knew obviously that they would start attacking you. I did, yeah. and you were so calm <laughs> and so relaxed. It was so good, um, and, and they disagreed with you. Yeah.
2: Um, so Tucker Carlson uh, believes, as as many people do, that sure. th- because all those things in that dossier were unproven, mm-hmm. that it should not have been published. Mm-hmm. BuzzFeed's argument, the one that I agreed with, was this document has been discussed at the highest levels of the U.S. government. Yeah. All four heads of the uh, National Intelligence Agency apparatus in the U.S. discussed this document with Donald Trump and Barack Obama. So, hmm. And it was prepared by a guy who's an expert in Russia, yeah. a former MI6 operative who spent 20 years studying Russia. Mm-hmm. It's not as though some guy just overheard some stuff when he was in Moscow about what Donald Trump liked to do in hotels. This was a classified report Mm -hmm. prepared by a credible source Mm -hmm. that all the heads of the national security establishment briefed the president on. And yet, all the stories about it just said, oh, there's this document and it has all this really important stuff in it, but we're not going to tell you what it is or what it says, but it's super important and everyone's talking about it. And it could change, you know, the nature of the sort of government and the way. Right. Yeah. But we're not going to tell you what's in it. So I think BuzzFeed's response was, well, if it's gotten to that point where you're reporting on it Mm -hmm. and you're talking about all these people who are talking about it, you should show it to people and say, this is what people are talking about. It hasn't been verified. You know, we're working on trying to confirm the things that are in the document. But it has gotten to the point where the National Security Establishment is effectively briefing the President on this information, and you deserve to know what that information is.
0: Has that story gone away?
2: No, it's kind of... Uh, well, it's been overtaken by sure. all the other crazy stuff that's happened yeah. uh, that Donald Trump has done, but it's still out there. Okay. And in fact, <coughs> the FBI and the CIA are both investigating Donald Trump's ties to Russia and potential conflicts Potential um, actions that the Russian government may have taken to compromise the Trump administration at huh. the highest levels. This is a significant story. It's not just dirt that somebody dug up and is throwing on the wall mm-hmm. to see if it sticks or not. This is a significant story that could change the way we look at the legitimacy of the Trump government.
0: That it's very interesting you say that because you know on one hand you know, there, there's there's these checks and balances. But on the, on the other hand, I mean, he just let go the Attorney General. Yeah. Because he didn't agree with what she was doing. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm curious, it's one of the things that, that I feared and maybe a lot of people do is, will it get to the point because e- effectively, you know, I see it as it's not just the Republicans that control Congress. I almost see it as like like he controls it because, You know, he sort of swept the Republicans, you know, into power, not just himself, that will they continue allowing him to sort of place his people in strategic places so that he can continue doing what he wants to do? So I'm curious whether anything will change for the for the better.
2: I think that's a tough call. I mean, even though he didn't win the popular vote, uh, he won the Electoral, Electoral College. He's got a lot of support. In the Congress and the House of Representatives. Um, He is allowed to do things like firing the Attorney General. Yeah. Um, Other presidents have done that. Sure. So it's not like that's somehow beyond the pale of normal civilized conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, He is allowed to create executive orders like he did for the immigration ban. Uh, Obama did something similar. Yeah. But it's the way that he's done those things Mm. without any real discussion among the sort of government types who would usually be involved in something like that. Mm. So the executive order was not even discussed with the departments that would then have to execute it. Mm. So there was zero discussion. It was like a, a kind of coup d'etat where Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and all the senior guys came up with these ideas by themselves, effectively put them into motion without telling anyone, yeah. and then kind of sprang the trap. Uh, and everyone was left wondering what the hell was going on. Uh-huh. Um, there were heads of senior departments whose staff were working on the executive order, and they didn't know about it. That's crazy. Yeah, so effectively Trump is doing a kind of same way he's done an end run around the media. He's mm-hmm. doing an end run around large chunks of the Washington establishment. Mm-hmm. So you can look at that one of two ways. If you're a Trump supporter, that's great, right? He's Doing what he said he would do, which is draining the swamp. He's getting rid of all sorts of, you know, long-time government types who who are ineffective or who are... And he's implementing his own rules without asking permission from kind of government types. Yeah. Uh, they s- His base, I think, sees that as a good thing. We sure, see it, Other sure, sure. lots of people see it as chaos yeah. and as him kind of destabilizing the sort of normal... Functioning of government, yeah. I think his supporters see it as him walking in there and you know kicking ass and hmm. doing the things he wants to do. They probably think it's great.
0: From a policy standpoint, I'm curious your thoughts on the impact on Canada. You know, with the sort of protectionist, isolationist, um, us versus them, uh, you know, America first, everyone else. You know get in line what's the impact you think on on on, on the Canadian economy uh, more specifically things that you're closer to the Canadian tech o- you know tech industry you know what are your thoughts on that
2: I think it's anytime a nation as big as the us especially one that that we're so dependent on yeah becomes protectionist it's going to have an impact if if Donald Trump is fundamentally believes that it's America first and that he should You know, if you manufacture anything, you should do it in the U.S. If you're, if he can sort of follow that through, it could have a significant impact. There could be auto companies that might not expand their plants here because they feel like they should do it in the U.S., because otherwise Trump will get mad. So then you've lost some operations that might have existed in Canada. Mm -hmm. If you're, the thing is, he can't really. Everything can't be America first. So I would expect if you're the oil patch, it might actually be a good thing. If he's allowing all sorts of drilling and pipelines that weren't going to be allowed before, Mm -hmm. if he's going to let the pipeline go ahead, for example, Mm -hmm. that's actually a pretty good thing. So that might be good. Yeah, yeah, that might be good for your economy. It might Mm -hmm. be good for the West. Mm -hmm. Um, There are probably other things he's going to do that are going to be bad Mm -hmm. because it's going to prevent companies from. Expanding in Canada Mm -hmm. because they'll want to suck up to Donald Trump by expanding in the US.
0: Yeah. It was very interesting recently, um, you know, and this had to do with sort of this, you know, banning Muslims or banning, you know, people coming from Muslim, predominantly Muslim populated countries. Um, Hashtag delete Uber trended. Yeah. Um, In the States, Lyft, you know, uh, jumped ahead of Uber um, in the App Store. All because, I guess for a couple of reasons f- that I've read. One, Uber um, decreased their prices um, t- you know, to service around the airports. Yeah. Uh, and the CEO of Uber is, is on some Trump council, yeah. economic council. Um, I was very curious at Tesla. There wasn't a delete Tesla, return my Tesla car.
2: Um, yeah, I think people's beliefs about Elon Musk are considerably more favorable than Travis Kalanick at, at Uber. Uh-huh. Um, Travis has, I think, burned a lot of bridges as Uber was growing, uh, made it clear that Uber didn't really care about sort of the regulatory environment, that it was prepared to mm-hmm. kind of walk into markets and ignore the regulations and kind of have its own way. And yeah. um and that's a very sort of aggressive Silicon Valley approach to take, that sure. we know what's better yeah, than yeah. the market does. Um, so there was this kind of built-up, pent-up hatred for Uber. Yeah. So then you have the New York cab drivers deciding to to strike effectively to yeah. help bring attention to the protests. And Uber says, well, fine, we'll just come in there and pick everyone up Yeah. and make a whole pile of money. Yeah. Um, That doesn't look great. You know, it's... I mean, you could argue, yes, your job is to serve people and to get them rides to go wherever they want. um, But people also, I think, expect companies like Uber to have a corporate conscience and to do things that, you know, are maybe not in their short-term economic interests, Mm -hmm. but are in the sort of broader social interest. So you saw the same thing happen every time when there was a hurricane in new york mm-hmm. and uber used surge pricing that's right yeah, yeah they were criticized heavily for basically gouging people who yeah. were in need yeah and they took a lot of heat for that yeah. um, their argument which is a cl- again a classic nerd silicon valley argument is surge pricing is designed to bring more riders into the market yeah that's what it does yeah. it, that's why you put the prices up yeah. so that you can encourage more drivers to provide supply yeah a f- that's a totally rock solid economic argument. Sure. But to someone who's making a fundamentally emotional argument, which is you should help people. Yeah. Th- you're talking two different two languages. Two different languages, right? 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 right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's. I love Twitter, <coughs> um, I use it a lot. Uh, what's next for them? It seems like they're, they're going through some challenges. I, I think they've been buoyed because of Trump using that platform. Um, but they seem to be lost. they seem to be n- th- I don't think they really know who they are or what they are um What are your thoughts on on twitter?
2: that kind of describes Twitter like from the moment of its creation uh if you look <laughs> at yeah. all at twitter's history yeah um that company has sort of failed its way to success uh wow. it's It's really a mind boggling yeah uh It's almost cartoonish how (laughs) often things screw up at that company, and yet it continues to do well. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg had a comment in uh, Nick Bilton's book, Hatching Twitter, he said. Loved reading uh, that book. Yeah, he was quoted as saying that they were like uh, a bunch of guys in a clown car who crashed into a gold mine. Um, And it's true. The management of that company has been so haphazard. And s- they just keep changing CEOs. Now it's Jack, who's yeah. also CEO of another large company at the same time. Yeah. Um, I don't think they... So it is a great tool. Um, and I like to talk about how there's two Twitters. Okay. There's the service, which is fundamentally great. Like it's a an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. I use it all the time. I'm devoted to it. Lots of people are devoted to it. Then there's the company. So okay. it's a great... Service, yeah, it's a terrible company, <laughs> and it's terrible in so many different ways. Um, they had a chance, I think, at one point not that long ago, to be effectively a utility in the same way that yes. email is yes. a, is effectively a utility. Yeah, to provide an instant messaging style, short messaging function mm-hmm. that could be built into everything that could power this this incredibly powerful real time sort of communication. Uh, ecosystem Mm -hmm. and they deliberately chose to blow that up Mm -hmm. and to focus on advertising and I think that was a mistake and they're realizing it was a mistake. Their ad revenues are not growing quickly enough to justify the stock price. Mm -hmm. Um, So is there the core of a great service there? Yes.
0: I think so yeah.
2: But is it worth $15 or whatever the market cap of that company is? No. So now you have They went public. They probably shouldn't have gone public at all. Mm. But they went public because the shareholders, the investors wanted to get a payout and so on. And so they pumped up their ad business and their numbers to try and generate enough value to convince people that they were worth whatever they went public at. And ever since then, it's just been a steady ride downhill. Mm -hmm. I mean, 75, 80 percent of the market value of that company is gone. Wow. Since it went public. Yeah. So there's definitely a useful service there. And there's definitely a company that can survive and make money. Yeah. But there isn't a company that should have 2,000 employees or whatever it is in a market cap of 15 billion. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So now what do you do? Mm-hmm. Now you wait and see if maybe somebody will acquire you. Um, so Google seems like an obvious fit. Mm-hmm problem is google 15 billion or so is still a hefty chunk of change sure for google to spend they already have agreements with twitter to build their data into the into google searches why yeah. do they need to own twitter yeah so everyone who's come up there was a frenzy of speculation about right. that for a while about who was going to buy them everyone that seemed like a credible acquisition mm-hmm. uh Partner evaporated. Yeah, uh, and in some cases, it was because of the sort of hate and offensive um, activity on Twitter, mm. which Twitter I don't think has done enough about, yeah. and I think it would admit that. So, a couple of companies, at least from what I heard, decided to step back because they didn't want to take that on. They didn't want to be seen as running Not a brand a match. network exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, now Snapchat is IPOing. Mm. This year rumors are rumors are there soon yeah yeah um, and and I, I'm hearing the same sort of things they're pumping up their ad business um, it it's a it's a fun app it's a fun tool i I, I get why people love utilizing it um, what are your thoughts on 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 that business on that company?
2: I think pretty much the same thing I think yeah? it is it's a fantastic service. My kids use it all the time. Yeah. I don't use it that much yeah. because I'm old, but <laughs> uh, but I do think that there is a lot of value there. Is there $30, $40, 50000000000 billion dollars in value there? I don't know. Um, I have seen a couple of analyst reports where they've argued that it feels very much like Twitter to them, that yes, it's a useful service, ah. and yes, lots of people use it and are devoted to it, but it doesn't have the sort of monetization ability that something like Facebook has. Mm-hmm. So Snapchat is fundamentally private in a way that Facebook is not. Right. So yeah. you it's all about you and the friends that you choose to share with on Snapchat. It's not public in the same way say Instagram is or Facebook is. Sure. So the value is is you could argue is limited because if you advertise in a stream the only people who see that stream are going to be a relatively small group of friends of yeah. that spe- one specific user. Mm-hmm. You don't have a kind of broad marketplace like Facebook. You don't have uh, kind of public interaction the way you do on Instagram. All it's all very person to person or person to small group. Not to say that that's not valuable, but it's a different kind of value. Mm-hmm. And is it going to be a massive kind of global world-changing platform the way that Facebook was? I don't think so.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was it last year, maybe the year before, Gawker and Hulk Hogan. may have been last year. So Gawker publishes photos or it was a video, sex tape, or something like that. Yeah. Um, the same publication that published the photos uh, of Rob Ford. Yeah. Um, and Hulk Hogan sued Gawker. And I'm c- I can't remember the name of... That Silicon billionaire Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel.
2: Yeah. Uh, Early Facebook investor.
0: Yeah. Effectively, from what I, I understand, bankrolled Hulk Hogan's case. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hulk Hogan wins. Is is Gawker's out? Yeah. What do, What are your thoughts on? I, I guess specifically that case, but generally the the ability for. It seemed to me that you had a a billionaire with power who had a grudge against Gawker for stuff that Gawker reported about him. Yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts on all of that.
2: I found it a very, very disturbing case. Yeah. Uh, there were lots of things that you could criticize Gawker for. Yeah. Um, I think Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker, would even admit that there were lots of things you could k- criticize Gawker for. Yeah. I think he agreed that certain things that Gawker wrote went too far. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he would agree that the Hulk Hogan piece went too far Hmm. because Hulk Hogan had made a point of talking about his sex life, talked about it routinely in public. Mm -hmm. So he had already bragged about his prowess and so on. The idea that his privacy would somehow be infringed because a 90 second grainy clip showed up on the Internet is farcical. Yeah, Uh, there's also a principle in the United States. Uh, where newsworthy content is given First Amendment protection. So if something is newsworthy, then it effectively can't be defamatory. Hmm. So the argument was Hulk Hogan is not enough of a public figure. (laughs) If he had been the president Mm -hmm. or prime minister or something, or even a senior government official, Mm -hmm. then you could argue the public had a right to know. Yeah problem was that it was right on the line so he's sure. a wrestler but he's a former wrestler yeah there was clearly a divorce of some kind going on between his friend and his friend's wife mm-hmm. there w- it just seemed sort of seedy yeah. and unnecessary mm-hmm. at the same time to have a billionaire effectively fund not just that case, mm-hmm. but two other cases okay, designed know. to bankrupt Gawker yeah. is a really frightening phenomenon. Yeah. So Peter Thiel effectively spent, I think, almost a decade trying to come up with enough lawsuits or one lawsuit that would bankrupt Gawker. Huh. And he achieved it. Yeah. The company was bankrupt because of a, an incorrect verdict mm-hmm. by a jury in Florida, I think, mm-hmm. and then could not afford... Effectively to continue with an appeal. That's a frightening thing because it means that only billionaires like Peter Thiel have the right to pursue their cases in court. Everyone else loses all their money and has to effectively give up. That doesn't mean they were wrong. It just means they can't afford to continue fighting. So that strikes me as wrong.
0: Yeah. What about... So... what about the fact of the sort of media being able to be driven out of business by 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 capital?
2: That's also disturbing. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a site that's run by a friend of mine called Techdirt. They're being sued by mm-hmm. one of the same people who sued Gawker, a guy who claims that he invented email. Okay. Even, though, even though he didn't yeah, and so he's suing Tector for defaming him by saying that he's a fraud and that he didn't create email uh-huh. so the facts of that case are not the important thing mm-hmm. the important thing is whether this guy has enough money yeah. to basically drag the case out to the point where Tector ha- has to settle or give up Yeah. so then <coughs> it's not about the facts or the merits of the case, it's about how much money you have Yeah. And to some extent, the U.S. judicial system has always been like that. But when it results in a media organization effectively ceasing to exist, Mm -hmm. that's a disturbing thing. That is. Lots of people said, "Wow, we don't care. Gawker was garbage anyway. Who cares? Yeah. The principle is. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. What if there's another company that's better than Gawker also pisses off Peter Thiel? Yeah. He bankrupts them because he can. That's not a good place to be. Mm. It's the precedent that it sets. There was a billionaire who sued Mother Jones, almost got to the point where he ruined that company. Wow! Mother Jones is a fantastic organization that fights for social justice and so on. To have a single billionaire who got mad about something that was written about him effectively bankrupt that company is a travesty.
0: It's changing times, I think, that we're living in. Um, And I I thank you so much for spending (laughs) about an hour here. Happy to do it. Chatting about that. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.